Well, greetings. I'm Pastor Art Georges from Living Hope Community Church, and uh, this is the Sunday when Pastor Daniel and I swap pulpits, so he is with Living Hope over in Bartonville, and I have the joy of being with you, and so it's great to be here, and uh, so thankful for all that the Lord is doing here, and we're excited about your new construction as that develops. It's neat to see that on the website and to see what the Lord is doing and is going to be doing. Um, also thankful, uh, Daniel told me it was casual here in years past. I've worn a suit, so I'm glad that I can dress a little more casually, and uh, it's good to be with you. I, he told me that, uh, he texted me yesterday and told me pants were optional. I wasn't sure if he meant pants or shorts or what, it, what he was really talking about, but so I decided to err on the side of caution and wear them. Um, if you're not familiar with Living Hope, if you're new even to Bethany community, so you're not as familiar with Living Hope, uh, Bethany Baptist planted a church in Bartonville in 2003 and then um, planted here in 2008. And so uh, we're basically a sister church of yours. And Daniel and I do this pulpit swap on Labor Day weekend. Uh, it was to answer the fact that Pastor Rich and I do one after Christmas, which affords us the opportunity to spend a little more time with family. And Daniel said, hey, what about me? Where do I get in on this? And so we started doing this, and I'm not sure it gives him any more time with his family, but here we are. Um, I came to Christ later in life. I, I gave my life to Christ at almost the age of 35, and not long after that, felt the call to ministry. And a couple years later, uh, we moved to Southern California to attend the Master's Seminary, and while I was a student there, I worked at the Master's College, which is under the same umbrella of the ministry there at Grace Community Church, and I was a security officer, and um, it was on one evening as I worked as a security officer at the college uh, that the college was hosting a Christian high school homecoming. And so the homecoming was put on there at the Master's College, and we as security officers were charged with directing traffic and keeping things orderly. And uh, you know, so, again, let me reinforce that this was Christian high schools having their homecoming. And so you would assume that they uh, are owned by Christian parents who would be picking those Christian kids up, and yet it was one of at that evening when I had one of my most amazing interactions with another Christian, another Christian parent. Um, so we were directing the traffic. We had these orange pylons set up in the traffic or in the parking lot, which was filled, and we were directing traffic away from that. But you and I know how we hate to be directed away from where we really want to go, right? Even as Christians, right? Amen. And so I had my cool orange pylon, and I was waving people the other way, and suddenly this car ran over the pylons, nearly ran over me, directly into the parking uh, spot that was closest, which was a handicapped spot, and I was in utter, utter shock. Um, this was supposed to be an orderly event with Christian people adhering to authority, right? And uh, so with a lot of adrenaline, I approached that car and as the person emerged, I said to him, giving him the benefit of the doubt, I said, 
Sir, did you not see that I was trying to direct you away from here? To which he said, do you know who I am? So with lightning speed, you know, the brain is faster than any uh, microprocessor. I don't know if you know that. I was comparing his face with all of the faces in my mind of the administration and staff and seeing no match. I quickly said what makes this the other reason that this was one of the most amazing interactions I've ever had with another Christian. Have you ever had an interaction with someone and you thought the next day, oh, if I only would have said this or if I would have thought of that or, you know, uh, you wish you had it to do over again. And this will be an interaction that I will never have to relive because the Lord gave me lightning quick speed in my response. He said, do you know who I am? And Without hesitating, I said, I'm going to assume that your name is not Mr. Humility. (laughs) Yeah! I was a Bruce Lee judo chop to the thorax. To which he responded, I want your badge number. I said, sir, my badge doesn't have a number but let me give you the number to my supervisor so you can tell him how you blatantly disregarded our directions. Now, I'm a pastor, and I know that Proverbs 15.1 says that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. But, you know, you gotta, you got to be pretty impressed with that whole interaction, right? So, okay. And, and I, I've, not, I've not been saddened by my response there. I thought it was merited. But, you know, his, his response to authority, his response to that whole evening, I think is not so uncommon to how we feel sometimes in the church. That sort of, you know, do you know who I am? When, when we bring that attitude into the church, we have the potential to create division. When we identify ourselves with who we are outside of the church, what we've accomplished outside of the church, so that we expect others to uh, interact with us on the basis of who we are outside of the church, it is the prescription for division and disunity. Now, as the Apostle Paul has written his letter to Corinth, the major issue at Corinth was division, was disunity. There were a lot of individuals within the church at Corinth in that first century who were coming to the body and expecting people to recognize them on the basis of who they were outside of the church or on the basis they were they were admiring and esteeming one another on the basis of uh, talents and gifts that were not how God identifies us with. And so uh, just as that man at the master's college in that parking lot had a case of mistaken identity, so you and I can bring this case of mistaken identity into the church of Jesus Christ and expect others to esteem us Uh, We believe that we deserve or we don't deserve something that we receive, some type of treatment that we receive within the body of Christ. And it's all stemming from this same issue of having a mistaken case of identity. So 
what that man was dealing with, we deal with, the Apostle Paul had to deal with at Corinth as he addresses them in 1 Corinthians. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you're not already there. Our passage is verses 1 through 9. I'm going to read it if you would follow along. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. I realize that uh, many of you may have other translations, but perhaps uh, you'll catch something even in uh, the differences of the translations as you follow along. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which, at, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That may seem to you to be uh, an ordinary introduction from an apostle to a congregation. And everything that he said to them may seem to you as simply the truth because uh, that you've read and you know that all those things are true of a believer. But what the Apostle Paul is doing in this introduction is given much more insight when we know about the whole letter. We know that there was division there. We know that there were hardships within this body because they had brought their outside world into the church. They were dealing with one another on the basis of pride and arrogance, and therefore it was a prescription for disaster. And so what the Apostle Paul has done in this introduction is much more than introduced himself and who he believes these Christians are, but rather he has restored their identity. He has helped them to see themselves as they must see themselves in order to have unity within the body of Christ. And friends, the same thing is necessary for us as well. If we are to have unity within the body of Christ, we have to face uh, down our ways of viewing ourselves the ways that we believe others ought to relate to us on the basis of the outside world. And we need to see who we are in Christ and who others are in Christ. We need to see that there is no one big or little at the foot of the cross. And that is why the Apostle Paul has introduced his letter in such a way. Before we get into the passage, I want to kind of give a quick illustration um, on, on how you can segregate uh, simply and, and truthfully and yet cause division. And I would do it by way of a numerical example. If we take the numbers 1 through 10 and we look at them in certain ways, then we create a grouping. And it's an arbitrary grouping perhaps, but it still has caused us to segregate what was once a group of 10 numbers. We can look at them as prime numbers and non-prime numbers. And some of you are saying, holy cow, what is he doing? 
I hate this stuff. I didn't want to study this in school, and I don't want to study it now. I'm just using it by way of example, so hang with me. Prime numbers, one, two, three, five, and seven. My eighth grader caught my mistake the first time I did this and said, Dad, you left two out. Oh, yeah, two is a prime number. You see, we hate prime numbers. We can't remember how you figure out which one is prime and not. It's divisible by one in itself, and that's it, evenly, okay? Non-prime numbers, four, six, eight, nine, ten. Arbitrary, but we've still looked at the same numbers, and we've caused a division by how we've viewed them. We could view them, perhaps, by odd and even uh, attributes. We've got one, three, five, seven, nine, and, and then the even ones. And everyone knows that you want to be an even number, right? Who wants to be odd in anything, right? Or we could look at them as uh, whole numbers, and now we've looked at them in a way that causes unity. All of them are whole numbers, or we could look at them as those that are divisible by one without a remainder. Don't you love it when they're divisible by something without a remainder? Who likes remainders, right? Nobody, okay? So by the way that we've looked at these same numbers, we have evaluated them and caused a grouping division. Or we have looked at them in a way that causes unity. So it is with the church at Corinth. They were viewing themselves in ways that were causing division, not in ways that were causing unity. We can do the same thing today, right? We can say, well, over there is the group of families that homeschool, and there's the non-homeschoolers. Or over there is the group of people that have adopted, and here's the people that haven't adopted. And if we continue to evaluate one another on the basis of those labels and others, we can begin to feel excluded or included, whether or not we fit those characteristics. The same thing had been happening at Corinth, but in a much more cynical way, and it had caused division within the body of Christ. Look with me at the text again as I read a little further from our passage, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, and, and that actually means thinking the same and saying the same thing, and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So in other words, Paul is writing to a church that has been divided because of how they are viewing themselves and how they are viewing others. And because the same thing can happen to you and I within our church body, church family, I believe that it's important for us to look at this passage and see how we are to identify ourselves through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what we're doing through this passage is we're restoring our identity, not by virtue of who we are outside of this place, but by virtue of who we are at the foot of the cross. The same identity of, of who a believer is through faith in Jesus Christ is what you and I must embrace if we are to avoid division within the body of Living Hope, Bethany Community, Bethany Baptist, and even the fellowship of churches. 
Paul wanted to restore the identity of who those believers, these believers were in Christ, and we need to consider the same. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, perhaps one of, one of your favorite verses. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, his identity had changed through faith in Jesus Christ. And so has every other believer. And when we view each other in this way, it has a way of unifying. And that is why the Apostle Paul constructs his introduction to the Corinthians in just the way that he has. Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself, who loved me and gave himself up for me. What I want us to walk away from this passage and this message from, this main idea is this. Failing to define myself by who I am through faith in Jesus Christ results from pride and worldliness, creating division within the body of believers. In order to enjoy unity and purity in the church, I must embrace my identity in Christ. In order to enjoy unity and purity in the church, I must embrace my identity in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me after this long introduction and let's ask the Lord to help us to absorb the truths in this passage so that we might strive towards unity in our churches. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word, your timeless truth. And Father, this morning as we look into a passage that is constructed to engender unity within your body, may we receive those truths and may we begin to live by them. Father, forgive us for how we sometimes view ourselves and others on the basis of what we or they have accomplished outside of here, or even our and their failings. Forgive us for those misgivings, and Father, help us to see the value of each and every person through faith in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says later to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, we no longer evaluate any man according to the flesh. So, Father, forgive us and help us as we strive towards unity of the faith by how we identify ourselves and one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe the controlling idea that we can use to, to identify this restored identity that the Apostle Paul is attempting to get across to the divided Corinthians is this. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have become an individual. In other words, your identity has changed and you have become an, identify, an, an individual who is, first of all, qualified and transferred into God's kingdom qualified and transferred into God's kingdom. You say, where is that in the text? Paul indicates, first of all, that what is significant about the Christian is that he or she has been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Look with me at the text. Paul says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctification, we know as that word, which means that we have been set apart from the world that we live in. In other words, God has set us apart from a fallen world that he has left us in to live set apart lives. 
But let's flesh out what that means and how that impacts how we interact with one another on an equal footing. The church at Corinth was under this delusion that they were the cat's meow. They were the end-all, be-all of God's church. But notice what the Apostle Paul says. Saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In other words, church at Corinth, Bethany community, we are not the end-all, be-all of God's redemptive people. We are in union with others in every place who call on the name of the Lord. That has a humbling impact as we allow that to filter down into our hearts. But more importantly, he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. I want to point out to you that, that wor- those words, have been sanctified, are in the passive tense. What that means is that that has been done to us. We didn't set ourselves apart, but we were set apart by God, by his sovereign plan, by his own doing. In fact, if you look down to verse 30 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says to them again, but by his own doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So we have been sanctified. It's something that's been done to us. What's more, it is in the perfect tense, which means that it has a past occurrence with ongoing implications. In other words, your having been set apart has continuing relevance in your life here and now, and it will continue. It will continue. You will not become unset apart by God. The gifts and the calling, Romans chapter 11 say, is irrevocable. And so we... We should enjoy unity because the reality is that we are those who have been sanctified. And first of all, I want you to see that what that means is that you have been qualified. Because you have been sanctified, what that means is you have been qualified to inherit God's kingdom. Many of us have purchased a home. And when we are in the early stages of looking, we knew that we needed to get qualified for a loan. And so we went to a financial institution and we allowed them to evaluate our credit worthiness in order to indicate to a potential buyer that we were qualified or pre-qualified, they usually say, right? And that kind of makes us uncomfortable because we're not sure if that's going to change in the course of the, uh, the transaction. But you've been qualified or pre-qualified because of your credit worthiness. What is the credit worthiness of the Christian? It's not their own righteous standing. It's not their own works of righteousness. Rather, they have been qualified because they have the righteous credit of Jesus Christ, who came and perfectly obeyed God's law, who humbly went to the cross and perfectly obeyed God's God's call in humbling himself to the point of death on the cross. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we are given his perfect righteous standing with God. And so what it means to be sanctified is that you have been qualified to inherit the kingdom of God, not on the basis of your own efforts, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you access 
Jesus' credit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 indicates this when it tells us that we who believe have been qualified, the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been qualified to, to share in the inheritance of God, his kingdom. That's what it means to be sanctified in this passage. Let me apply this part of it before we get on to transfer. The fact that you have been qualified and it is not your own doing, and the fact that others through faith in Jesus Christ have been qualified to share in the inheritance of God means that we ought not to identify with people on the basis of what we think we've done to please God. We, not, we ought not to treat others on the basis of whether or not we believe that they're worthy or not to be part of our church, to be part of our groups, because God has qualified them. It is his doing, and so we ought to treat others within the body of Christ. You see, this has a unifying impact. If we see that we are in fellowship with those that God has qualified, then it's not about whether or not we want to be in fellowship with them. God has called us to be. Being sanctified through faith in Christ means not only that we have been qualified, but also that we have been transferred into God's kingdom. That same passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. In other words, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been transferred into God's kingdom. I love that passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It says that through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been seated in the heavenly places within Christ Jesus. Do you remember in the 70s that fad where you could buy those, uh, those fold-up chairs? They were called director's chairs, and you could actually have your name added to them if your parents were gracious enough to get you one and have your name put on it. That's what I always think about when I think about Ephesians chapter 2. Seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That means there's a chair up there with my name on it. There's a chair up there with your name on it. You already have a seat in God's kingdom. And the significance that unifies us in that case is that we better start getting along with one another. We, we ought not to think that we get to pick and choose who we're in fellowship with. Why? Because we're going to spend all of eternity with them. We're going to spend all of eternity with one another. Can you imagine how we would feel if we looked down our nose upon, upon someone who shows up there? How embarrassed we would be to think, you know, I didn't really want to hang out with you down there, but I guess here we go for all of eternity. No, you see, it's unifying when we recognize that God has sanctified, meaning he's qualified and transferred every individual who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ to inherit and be part of God's calling. Notice what the Apostle Paul says, saints by calling, saints by God's own calling. Just as Paul in verse 1 had said that he was an apostle by the will of God or by the call of God, so every believer becomes a believer because of the call of God on their life. We are very confused about what it means to be a saint today. We hear one church say that you have to do at least one miracle and you have to be this really uh, 
high-profile person who everybody knew. And isn't it interesting that that is not at all how the Scriptures portray it? Here Paul writes to the Corinthians, who really are a mess, are, are creating division because of their pride and their arrogance, and Paul says, you guys are saints, because that word is just a, 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 it's a derivation of the word set apart. You guys have already been set apart. God set, a, set you apart. You're a saint. So start acting like it is what he's saying. So again, by way of application, we should not look down or devalue one another because God has qualified us. God has transferred us to take part in that future kingdom. And so we need to get ready for that here and now. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you become an individual who's not only qualified and transferred to inherit God's kingdom, but secondly, through faith in Jesus Christ, you become an individual who is enriched with a grace gift to serve the local fellowship of believers. There's a second way that we are to view ourselves and one another that leads to unity, and that is to recognize that everyone who has called upon the name of the Lord is valuable and God gives them a place in the body to serve. We need one another. And when we realize that we need one another, instead of thinking that we can do without certain people within the body, that has a way of unifying. When an individual places his or her faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third member, the third person of the Holy Trinity, uh, seals that person for the day of redemption, but also gives them the indwelling power to live a life that's pleasing to God. And part of that pleasing life is to serve others within the body of Christ. And how we are called to serve one another is on the basis of this gifting that God gives us through the Holy Spirit. Look at what the Apostle Paul says beginning in verse 3. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, wonderful words that remind us that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Not only that, but we ought to have peace with one another. And we are also endowed, imbued with God's amazing grace to live a life that's pleasing to him. And then he says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. In other words, the Apostle Paul is telling this divided congregation that they had each been given a gift and they needed each other. He's going to go into that in more detail, as you probably know, in chapter 12. What causes disunity oftentimes is when we forget that, that we have been gifted and called to serve one another, and we evaluate our worthiness or another person's worthiness on the basis of other abilities. Maybe we want to think that we're special because of what we do or have done in the worldly theater, in our careers. You know, God doesn't, he, he doesn't get excited about that in the church. In fact, the reality is, and Paul's going to say it later in chapter 4, 
why do you, but what do you have that you didn't receive, Corinthians? And if you received it, why do you boast about it as if you did not receive it? In, in other words, they were looking at themselves and one another and valuing or devaluing on the basis of abilities outside of the church. And Paul says, you know what? Those are from God. Why are you thinking so highly of yourself when it's just a gift from God, just a blessing from God? But when it comes to the church, Paul is saying God has enriched each and every believer to fit. It's as if Paul could have taken a picture of the church at Corinth and then constructed it, cut it up into a jigsaw puzzle. And every piece would have been important. Every person would have been important. And without one of those pieces, it would have been incomplete. And friends, when we look at each other from a worldly perspective, we forget that. But when we look at each other through the lens of Scripture, we remember that each of us has been gifted to play our part. And you know what? There's not a big gift and there's not a small gift. Yes, there are gifts that are more uh, in, in people's eyes, but I as a pastor have found that the most important gifts at my church are the ones with those people serving behind the scenes, setting up, tearing down, serving at Awana. You know, uh, we just did our VBS several weeks ago, and I spent all my time in the sanctuary teaching the Bible lesson, and I loved it. I was so shocked at the closing ceremony to find that two saints had been there all week and I had not seen them at all, but they had done the wonderful work of impressing God's word on the hearts of each of those VBS children. So that at the end of the week, they had done an extraordinary job of teaching them how to hide 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in their hearts, verses, I think, 4 through 8. And I thought, wow, I didn't even know they were here but it was such an important part. You see, there's no big and no small gift. All of our gifts are important. And when we view each other in that way, then we recognize that we can have unity. But when we segregate ourselves on the basis of what we think are the important gifts or the unimportant gifts, we cause disunity. Specifically, if we come into the church and we think that we've got this talent or ability that we use in the world that ought to be used for the church, you know, God may choose to use what you do outside of here to serve here. But all too often, he chooses to use you in a unique way so that he would receive all the glory. So that others would say, wow, God was with that person because they couldn't have done that when I knew them before. Uh, many of you know our beloved Pastor Rich Burkle, senior pastor at Bethany. If you've talked to him and heard his testimony, he would tell you that he was so shy in high school that he was so shy he couldn't even look at your shoes, he could only look at his shoes. That's supposed to be funny. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Ken. But God has done, you know what? Pastor Rich is still kind of shy. But God has done such a great work in his life and his bold proclamation of God's word uh, is a testimony that it could only be God in him, the Holy Spirit in him. And that's a picture of how God enriches the body of Christ with giftedness so that we can be unified 
rather than divided. There's no small, no insignificant role. Ushers, greeters, uh, you know, uh, one of the greatest things about coming to Bethany Community Church is to see Gary Algren and to have him greet you at the door. He's such a sweet guy, and he even uh, is very kind as you leave. He kicks you out of here, but he's very, very sweet. That's an important part of the body of Christ. All of those gifts and, and the use of those gifts makes a church unified when we enjoy and admire it. So let me apply this right here with respect to enrichment of giftedness. You are not defined, your identity is not tied to what you do outside of here, but rather how God has spiritually gifted you to minister within this body. And we need to view each other on the basis of that. We need to encourage one another to use that giftedness. Just as the scriptures say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but all the more as you see that day dawning, encourage one another on to love and good works. Because our identity within this place is not tied to who we are outside of this place. Well, final, final unifying reality to the believer. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you have become not only an individual who has been qualified and transferred, not only an individual has been enriched with a grace gift to minister to the saints, but finally, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have become, your identity is tied to the fact that you are now living for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ for those who are his. Your identity is not tied to how successful or blessed your life is overall. In fact, uh, those who are most often, those who are successful and blessed in the world, find it hard to be as excited about or even to believe in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, and I know that you as a church body have been studying through First John, so you'll remember that the Bible says that if we love the world, the love of God is not in us. And what a challenge that is to us. I tell the story about how I was fighting materialism and I was out walking and we lived in this community that had lakes. And so I thought, man, it would be so cool to have one of those pontoon boats and to be able to go out with the family and even get some other church family to come over. And so as I'm walking around the lake praying, I'm praying and asking God to help me with my desire for material things and so, you know, I'm praying, I'm literally praying right then and there. And I look across the lake and there's a pontoon boat that's just the right size. I'm like, that's the kind of pontoon boat. Okay. Even when we pray, we struggle with that thing, that, that desire for the things of the world. And who we are in Christ, however, is a community of believers who have been saved by Christ and excited about his return. Often we meet people who are part of the church body or we know people who are part of the church body who don't show up all that often. They check out for long portions of time. Why? Because the world still has a strong hold on them. And if you were to ask them if they long for the return of Jesus Christ, they would struggle to be excited. His, re his return may very well interrupt something that they 
are excited or looking forward to. I remember someone saying, well, I know that Jesus is going to come back, but I, I, I hope that he won't come back until my daughter graduates. And I'm thinking, wow, so you'd rather sit in a hot gymnasium <laughs> watching that and not being able to hear anything and then for Christ to come back? What, what, is, what, what is up with that? Friends, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, our identity has been transformed. We are no longer children of this world, but rather we are children who have had our citizenship transformed. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 reminds us that we are citizens of heaven from where we await our Savior coming for us to transform our body. I have a feeling that the older we get and the more our bodies break down, the more we're excited about that. Amen. I went out and ran yesterday and I'm telling you, it was like 14 minute miles. Yeah, some of you say I walked that fast. Well, I was walking too. I was doing both, but I can't wait till my body gets transformed again. And, and we who believe it's more than simply just having our body renewed, but the, the, the greatest thing is that we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see him face to face and we're going to feel his warm embrace and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so let that be our encouragement. Your identity is not tied to the things that you're pursuing in the world, the worldly accolades, uh, but your identity is tied. Look at verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am always convicted when I read a statement like that. Am I awaiting eagerly? Paul assumes that you and I are if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Why? You know, I have some precious saints in my congregation that when we began ministering there, they would have said what many would say. You know, I'm looking forward to the return of Christ, but I hope that he waits till this or that. And then some of the circumstances of our fallen world and life, loss of loved ones at the age of 18, just horrific pain has caused them to long for the return of Christ all the more. Friends, when we see the growing darkness of this world and we embrace the hope that Jesus Christ gives us, that he'll make all things new, we begin to eagerly await for his return. However you feel about this, let this challenge you to grow in this desire. The mark of growing eagerness for Christ's return uh, is that you would long for his return even when things are going well. Not just in the hard times. You know what? The Bible indicates, and I know you've seen this in 1 John again, 1 John chapter 3, that when we long for Christ's return, it purifies our lives. It purifies our lives. Wherever you're at, let this be the application, wherever you're at in this area of longing for Christ's return, challenge yourself to grow in that desire. Begin to explore what the Bible says about the age to come. Begin to consider whether how you are living and your ambitions and desires would be pleasing to Christ at his coming. Begin to desire to be pleasing to Christ at his coming. You know, the great saint of yesterday, Jonathan Edwards, made all of these resolves, resolved never to do anything 
that I wouldn't do in the last half hour of my life. That's a great sentiment, but who would have clean clothes, right? (laughs) Who would have a clean sink? Who would have? But the heart's desire is right. Let us recognize, as as Moses prays, God, present, help us to present to you a heart of wisdom, knowing, our, knowing the, the, the shortness of our lives, knowing that we are but grass. You know, the afterword, so to speak, of that interaction that I had with that Christian father in the parking lot is that he called the guard shack later. I didn't get to talk to him, and he asked for forgiveness. For forgiveness for his actions, forgiveness for his attitude. He had allowed that interaction to challenge him and how he was representing himself to others and how he was viewing others in the greater Christian community. The Apostle Paul wants for each of us to be challenged in how we view ourselves and others in our own Christian community. And to that end, I pray that the Spirit of God who dwells in every believer will take his truth and impress it upon our hearts and lead us on to greater unity within his body. And yet perhaps you're here today and you're merely exploring the claims of Christ. You haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And part of what is offensive about the gospel of Christ is that it calls you to empty yourself of pride, of your pride of who you are out there and become nothing. Friend, would it help for you to know that all that you are now, apart from Christ, is still from God? It's all a blessing from God. You have nothing that uh, God hasn't given you the ability, even the ingenuity, even the determination to accomplish. It is all from God. He gives you the breath and he can take it away. Would it help to understand that Jesus, the Lord of glory, emptied himself and made himself of no reputation and even humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross? Friend, you'll never find peace and joy until you empty yourself of pride and receive the love, the forgiveness, and eternal life as the free gift to all who humbly receive Christ. Join the ranks of all who have allowed God to define their identity. Allowed God to define their identity as those who are qualified and transferred to inherit his kingdom. As those who are enriched with a gift that makes their life significant to others in an eternal way to serve one another. Identified by the fact that we are longing for the return of Jesus to make this dark world right. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for a passage of Scripture that can jostle us out of our lethargy, can jostle us out of convenience and how we view others, And how they contribute to our own convenience. How they contribute to our own esteem of ourselves. Father, thank you for a passage that teaches us that our identity is not by virtue of 
the abilities that you've given us that might have accomplished something outside of the body of Christ, but you are not a respecter of persons. And you identify us all equally at the foot of the cross as those who have been set apart to bring glory to you. Father, I pray that this passage of Scripture would encourage us that we would no longer perhaps see it as simply an introduction to the point where the Apostle Paul begins to get down to his real message, but rather it is part of the message. It is an attempt by the Apostle Paul to restore the identity of believing Christians to who they truly are in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this precious body of believers, and we pray that you would continue to do eternal work here and now through them, not only by rebuilding Washington, but by building eternity through your grace with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the saints give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.